Greetings and salutations, and welcome to This Ends at Prom. A coming-of-age podcast highlighting cinema about or marketed towards teen girls. I'm one of your hosts, BJ Colangelo, and I'm joined by my wife. Harmony Colangelo, a trans woman who grew up watching none of these movies. Is today's movie a queen bee? Or are we killing the teen dream? Get in, loser. We're analyzing the movies people make fun of us for loving. Twice as hard for the same motherfucking title, but I realize that I probably won't be so Welcome back, prom party, for another edition of Spooky Season. It's the final edition of Spooky Season for this year. Oh my god, it is. Wow. I know. Parting is such sweet sorrow. (laughs) I know. It's not like we don't watch horror movies year-round, but it does feel a little bit more special when it's in October. It's fine. If someone gets impatient, we're doing Black Christmas and another Christmas horror movie in December, so they don't have to wait that long. <laughs> that's that's very true. We are. We're just going to keep it, keep it rolling. Uh, but friends, this is everyone's favorite section of spooky season, and it's when we talk about a movie that is a little bit more friendly and a little less scary. That's a lie. This movie's kind of scary. But it's not, you know, we're not talking about a slasher. We're not talking about some coming-of-age gore fest where people are eating each other like raw. I know, you all wanted us to talk about raw. Or uh, we are what we are last week. Yeah, whoops. (laughs) (laughs) Hope you enjoyed it. (laughs) But yes, no, we are talking about the stop-motion, just absolute brilliant film, Coraline. And friends, we are not alone this week. We have with us, uh, you may know them from TikTok or their work on Robot Chicken and Crossing Swords and Santa Inc. Or just being an all-around cool person, stop-motion animator and assistant professor, Bonna Bones. Hey! Hi, how's it going? Great. Thank you for coming on our show. I have seen... I don't have TikTok, but BJ shows me the cream of the crop, so I've seen you more than once. <laughs> oh, that's so flattering. Thank you. I, like, curate a little playlist of the stuff that I have on TikTok, and because Harmony and I are both such huge fans of animation, in particular stop-motion animation, you kind of, like, fit this really nice sweet spot, and it's like, oh, now I can show you everything that went on in this conversation today. Yes. Yes, this is going to be great. I'm so excited. so stop motion animation is in my opinion like a really underappreciated art form um so i'm curious if you could share with our listeners who may not follow you on tiktok what got you into stop motion you know i think that stop motion is kind of like i've compared it in the past to record collecting while it might not be the most popular format there's always going to be collectors there's always going to be aficionados and I always had had just like an interest in it since I was a kid. I didn't know that was like an option that you could grow up and like be a stop motion animator. And so uh, once I kind of got a little bit older and realized like, oh, this is like somebody has to make that stuff. Who is making that stuff? I want to do that. Um, mostly because I can't draw to save my life. 
Uh, I'm an okay illustrator sometimes, um, but I was always really tuned into animation and I was like, I can't draw though, but I was always good at building things. And so stop motion just seemed like this really perfect fit and it worked out well. (laughs) I love that as someone who also cannot draw. Oh my God. My drawing skills are horrendous. Yeah, and I always joke with um, with my animation students that, like, you don't have to be a great artist to be a great animator. There's a difference, right? Like, there's a difference in understanding movement and understanding spatial relationships than, like, understanding ink on a page. And so, mm-hmm. like, a lot of really great animators, uh, like Don Hertzfeld, for example, like, he animates stick figures, but it's so good and so well done. And so, like, <laughs> it, animation allows for a little bit of... Uh, freedom in that way. Yeah, I definitely agree. And I'm just curious, like as a round table sort of thing, and I'll start with you, Harmony. What is the first like stop motion animated thing you remember seeing and like processing that it is stop motion that you're watching? Uh, I mean, most likely it was one of the Rankin Bass holiday specials, but I don't think I processed those as anything more than like a Christmas special or as... I, I I don't know. They didn't register in the same way that like James and the Giant Peach did growing up where I'm like, oh, no, this is mm-hmm. this is larger. This is something bigger than like the, you know, fairly slapdash holiday specials that weren't really meant to stand the test of time. But they're so charming that they do. Um, I, I'd say probably that. So James and the Giant Peach is, would be my answer. It was just very captivating and it made. There was some scale. There were some stakes. It felt like not like any other animation that I'd ever seen up till that point. Gotcha. Bana, how about you? You know, I think for me, it was Gumby. And I remember my parents got me a toy of Pokey, like a little it was like a little rubber toy that you could pose. Um, And I remember so distinctly like looking at it and be like, but this looks like the thing on TV. Because, you know, when you would get, like, a, t- a toy of, like, the, the Ninja Turtles or, like, He-Man or, like, whatever it was, like, there was always a disconnect because it wasn't a drawing. And so, like, that was the first time my brain, like, really put together, like, oh, Pokey is an actual thing that exists in the real world. Like, it's not just a drawing. And that's when I yeah. started to, like, put it together. Yeah, it's like, a, it's it's a physical object. And, like, I, I didn't even think about Gumby, but, like, that probably would have been one for me, too. Because that's a show that I watched growing up. I don't remember anything about Gumby, but I re- I recognize that it was a thing that I did watch, and yeah, it's just it. You even as like a small child, I think your brain recognizes when like there is a physical thing that you could theoretically touch versus like any other form of animation, right? Yeah, absolutely, and like, and I think those toys just help solidify it. Like when I could hold the toy in my hand, I was like, oh my gosh, this is magical. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, mine was I like the second you said Gumby, I was like, oh, man, I think that would have been probably mine as well. But I definitely remember having this distinct like holy shit moment watching the Rankin Bass uh, Peter Cottontail special what? from the 70s. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't not know what it Christmas is. Between- ones. <laughs> surprisingly not Christmas because in my brain I think I was like oh it's like a little Rudolph like stuffed animal because I like my mom is obsessed with the Rudolph uh 
Rankin Bass special. Like it's kind of unhealthy how much she loves it. Um, But I watched it every single year as a kid. And I think it's just one of those things where like it was part of my Christmas experience. So I never thought about it too much. Mm -hmm. But when I was introduced to the Peter Cottontail one, he does a lot of hopping and his character design is like really fuzzy. And I noticed that the little fibers on his cottontail um, were like not completely in sync and there was like movement to that. And it blew my mind because I think that was the reason, the, the, the moment that I realized, oh, people are like moving him. Like he's being moved around by people and I can't see the people moving him. And then my parents were like, no, it's like, it's frame by frame. That's what's happening. And I was like, that must take a thousand years. And they're like, yeah, it takes a long time. That's why it's so impressive to watch. And it just like blew my little mind. Yeah, fun fact, we call that chatter. It's uh, when the fibers move and the clothes move. It's We call it chatter, uh, and it's just like the imprint of like where our hands were. Um, and so there's certain shows and certain materials where like it just exhibits itself more like on fur uh, versus mm-hmm. like when I work on Robot Chicken, all of those puppets are, are made out of silicone, so we don't get it as much. But uh, it's I always found it very, very charming. Yeah, I like it a lot. And I know that some people complain about that sort of thing. We're like, I can see a thumbprint in that clay. But to me, it's like, well, you're seeing the the mechanisms. It's the same way that I think so many cinephiles are really nostalgic for like cigarette burns or like even like the vinegar staining of film strips because it's like, it just gives it more character, I guess. Um, so I've always found those little bits really endearing. I think that it's, inter- I like that I can tell that people put hours into something that makes me feel good <laughs> yeah like yeah, I agree. um comparing stop motion to like vinyl because like i collect records i wouldn't say i'm a record collector because i don't really care about value i collect at my convenience is really the way <laughs> i would describe it so i have records but I, I i describe most of my collection as like affectionately worn like there's a tons of there's tons of pops there's a lot of like fuzz and background noise but it feels like a campfire it feels like there's uh there, there there's actually like a physical human touch to it that i find extremely charming even if it is like really imperfect uh especially compared to like you know cds or streaming or any other form that has come since like cassettes i i don't know it's one of those things that i think people appreciate or they don't so i guess some people are just they demand perfection they don't like to see the flaws maybe how sausage is made but like this is obviously not as gross as that (laughs) (laughs) no totally though and i mean we're gonna talk a a bunch about that with Coraline, a movie that i think is just absolutely delightful but before we dive in any deeper it is now time for everyone's favorite part of the show Welcome to the morning announcements. As a reminder, you can support the show on Patreon, patreon.com backslash this ends at prom. Over at our Patreon, we offer things like our schedule ahead of time, wonderful playlists curated by Harmony, our Sadie Hawkins dance episodes focusing on teen boy movies, and we are currently going through our TV homecoming series through Pen15. We offer a free bonus episode every month for our subscribers at only $1. If now is not the right time to support financially, we totally understand. All we ask is that if you love the show, you send us to a friend, you give us a five-star review wherever it is you get your podcasts, and you tag us on social media, hashtag thisendsatprom or at thisendsatprom. 
As we enter into spooky season, I know that you must be dying for more of Harmony and I to talk about all things horror. Well, you can do that. Get yourself a subscription to Shudder. It is like Netflix for horror movies, but so much better and way cheaper. It is the best time to get it, the reason for the season, especially because Harmony and I are both featured in Queer for Fear, The History of Queer Horror. It is a new docuseries from Brian Fuller of Hannibal fame, and it is all about the history of queer horror. Check us and so many brilliant, wonderful minds and some of your absolute favorites. You're all going to freak out and scream when you see some of the people in this doc, I swear. But it is released on Shudder every week. Give it a look. Alrighty, so Coraline came out in 2009, which is a pretty interesting year in both context of film and also just animation specifically. So Harmony, what sort of context are you bringing to the table in terms of Coraline being birthed into existence? All right. Well, uh, Coraline is the first proper Leica film and bless it's the only one to actually turn a significant profit, which is a goddamn shame for everything else they've ever put out. Um, but 2009 is a really interesting period because this is sort of where we start to see the proper takeover of 3D animation. Um, and maybe, uh, Bana can talk about this significantly more than I can, but this is the year that like the princess and the frog comes out, which is, you know, commonly held to be like one of the last high profile 2D animated films, which is not even the last Disney one. They did a Winnie the Pooh film after this. But um, you also start to see the rise of a lot of different 3D animated features around this time where it's not purely like Disney and Pixar are not the only game in town anymore because you can have your Kung Fu Pandas and your Madagascars and your Ice Ages and your Bolts and your Cloudies with a Chance of Meatballs and other very, very large, successful films coming out that are not just dominated by like one, maybe two studios. And I think that that would likely be because of the cost. Um, 3D is not as expensive as, as 2D. It's not as time consuming, but it, it almost feels like a changing of the guard in that stop motion is becoming, you know, a, a, a niche thing. It's, it's like record collecting. It's, it's for people who are really into that kind of thing, even though a couple of years earlier, if you like look at Academy Awards, like Corpse Bride or Wallace and Gromit were nominated for Best Feature. And this year, yeah, Coraline was nominated, but like it and Fantastic Mr. Fox did not win. It was going up against Secret of Kellis, which is a, an absolutely gorgeous film, and the aforementioned Princess and the Frog, but it lost to Up. Because Pixar's because it's up. Pixar's gonna <laughs> Pixar, and if they're gonna stomp the competition with any movie, up is one of the ones that'll do it. So um, that's just sort of my recollection and my cursory knowledge of looking back around this time period. Bono, maybe you could uh, be more enlightened because I'm willing to bet <laughs> a quite a bit amount of money that you know a lot more about this than I do. <laughs> no, I love everything you've said so far, though, because it's so true. Because it was such a high profile year for animation in general and it really started to like change the stage for animation and i think uh while we had had some of these like cursory conversations like academically about the importance of animation i mm -hmm. think that like the early 2000s is when you start seeing an mainstream american animation really say like we're not just for kids mm -hmm. and 
we are here doing special things and you should regard us in the same way that you regard other movies. And so it's animation feels like the redheaded stepchild of like the film industry. Uh, (laughs) And uh, it feels like we're always fighting to be taken seriously and have a seat at the table. And I think that this is like the turning point of that is like this era of like early 2000s animation really starts to be the turning point of that, at least with the Academy and like American mainstream context. I definitely agree with that. And I'll be putting in the show notes of this episode for our listeners, um, a piece that I wrote last year or this year. I don't Time is meaningless. Whenever the Oscars happened, whatever time period of the calendar that happened, um, I wrote a piece about how disrespectful it was that the Academy basically was like, animation's just for kids. (laughs) (laughs) And everybody who works in animation was like, fuck you, what? Uh Um, Because what's interesting is that when I look at it, specifically like the Academy and how it treats animation, it feels like they kind of came out swinging with, you know, Shrek is the the first one that wins. That's not a Disney movie. And then it's followed by Spirited Away, which obviously is a Miyazaki movie. But then ever since then, it's basically Disney or Pixar's to lose, which is really infuriating sometimes because while I'm not denying there is incredible work that is done there, um, I don't know what year it was that Zootopia won, but it did not deserve it at all whatsoever. And I remember being so mad about it. And the only thing I could hear from people was, well, that's the one that I've seen. And it Mm -hmm. feels like there's so much adventurous, really cool animation happening that people are just missing out on. Um, And a lot of international animation as well, which is also frustrating because we know how Americans feel about subtitles. Um, (laughs) They're not great about it. Otherwise, Bong Joon-ho would not have to yell at us about it Mm -hmm. and make us all feel silly. But um, yeah, 2009 is just such a kind of ridiculously stacked year um with that lineup i think i would have been okay with any of them (laughs) winning (laughs) because i think they're all really incredible for very different reasons which is how i feel like the category should be every year but that's not always the case um but Coraline fits in this very interesting bubble for me so for those that don't know it's uh, directed by henry selick who is the person who directed Nightmare Before Christmas. Not Tim Burton. Get that shit out of your heads. Stop saying it. He did not direct that movie. He also had Um, nothing to do with this movie. (laughs) Yes. Like, I read this thing the other day because it's, you know, it's Halloween and we do a lot of lists like family-friendly horror movies and the amount of people that are like, Tim Burton's Coraline. I'm like, I'm going to set a building on fire. Stop doing this. Um, (laughs) It's directed by Henry Selleck, who is responsible for James and the Giant Peach. And he's a very cool guy. He has Wendell and Wilde coming out around the time Mm -hmm. this episode goes live. So like, dude knows his shit. Um, But (laughs) this is another like creepy kid kind of stop motion. Because for whatever reason, in America, we're super cool with stop motion when it's creepy kids. Like we love a creepy kid story. And I can't figure out specifically why that is. I don't know if it's just because so many people were really hype on Nightmare Before Christmas, but like they're down with that. They're down with Corpse Bride. They're down with Coraline. They're down with Paranorman and Monster House. Like like just films that have this similar aesthetic people are really excited for, but then like we'll sleep on Wallace and Gromit or Shaun of the Sheep and like any of these other ones because they're not creepy god i love um, the second sheep movie <laughs> i know you god, do. You love so it much so fun. much <laughs> <laughs> so i'll throw it around the room so harmony do you have a theory on why that could possibly be um well I, as far as looking at like a lot of stop motion historically uh it's very very common overseas compared to like america 
Um, and I don't know. I, I when I think of stop motion and it not being, you know, released in the U.S., I, I think of like Eastern Europe and it's dreadful over there. It's it's very bleak. I think there's a lot of like old world scares that exist, a lot of like classic fairy tales that it, it this has almost like a storybook quality just built in. And I don't know, maybe for some people who aren't as used to it, there's almost an uncanniness that makes it seem like the thing that we find charming. They go, no, it looks I could touch it. And that's weird to me. Um, I, I think there's just a lot of things that exist within the medium that lends itself to being a haunting in a way that 2D or 3D animation doesn't. Um, like I even think about like this year, Mad God came out and people, oh God, we, we saw that at, what was it? Uh, was it Beyond Fest? We saw it at Beyond Fest. Yes. Yeah. So we saw that last year at Beyond Fest and people were so excited. They thought it was going to be like super fun, but like dark and whatever. And there were laughs. And then over time, within about 10 minutes, <laughs> people stopped laughing because they went, oh, this is really gross and really rusty and like sure it's charming but like it's unpleasant by design and dark by design and i think that they didn't they weren't going into it taking it seriously they just were like oh it took 30 years to make i want to appreciate the art of it and weren't really prepared for what they were getting into i i don't know i just find that so fascinating compared to so many other movies that are out there that handle dark themes i think also people were like I know Phil Tippett from that Jurassic Park meme about how he was the dinosaur <laughs> controller and he didn't do his job. And then they showed up and went, oh, wait, Phil Tippett's a madman. Um, because, yeah, Mad God is just a stop motion fever dream. Like, if you've never done drugs and you want to know what it's like to do drugs, go watch Mad God. Uh <laughs> It's pretty damn close. Uh, Bonnet, how about you? Do you have a theory as to like why there are so many stop motion like spooky movies? I feel like in animation, we talk a lot about how to avoid the uncanny valley. And so like there's movies like Polar Express, right? Right. Which is notorious. Oh, God, yeah. <laughs> where like if you do it in CG, it, it looks really weird. Stop mm -hmm. motion can lean into the into the uncanny valley in a way that I don't think other mediums can because it's physical, because we understand it as a physical reality. I think that we can push into it in a way that is very hard to do with other mediums. And so it makes it really easy to like make something look creepy. Um, and I like what Harmony was saying about like Eastern European animation too, because I think that's so true is because like in the seventies, eighties, basically all of the animation that was coming out of the USSR was just inherently weird and super creepy mm -hmm. uh, until, until the fall of the USSR in the nineties. And so like you, you see a lot of Eastern European animation coming out of like culturally a very dark place. Uh, and it really set the tone for how we understand animation historically because that is considered by by most animation historians as like a golden era of animation. Um, mm -hmm. And I think it really just helped develop our taste uh, globally of like what we would expect stop motion to do. I th yeah, I think that that's a perfect example of, of all of this. And oh, Eastern European animation. <laughs> I follow a specific Twitter that just posts clips of like, weird Eastern European animated segments. And it is <laughs> one of the most jarring and fascinating things I've ever seen on the internet consistently. We've been waiting for you, Coraline. For me. Yep, wasn't the same here without you, kiddo. I didn't know I had another mother. Of course you do. Everyone does. 
Really? Uh-huh. And soon as you're through eating, I thought we'd play a game. You mean like hide-and-seek? Perfect! Hide-and-seek in the rain. What rain? And, like, that's the thing is I think when we have these discussions on animation when people talk about things that are extreme or bleak or definitely not for kids, I think, the go like, the easy go-to is people will bring up some, like, fucked up anime that they've seen and everyone sleeps on Eastern Europe and it's like, nah, they 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 have some real scaries over there <laughs> in their dark. artistry. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> so now we have – that brings us to Coraline and – Obviously, it's it's inspired by the book written by Neil Gaiman. Um, Neil Gaiman is Neil Gaiman. I shouldn't have to explain who he is to people. Um, and something that I have always found really interesting is that the story of Coraline was inspired by some stories that his daughter, uh, Holly, had told him when she was in kindergarten. Um, this is a quote from an interview he did with the CBC uh, all the way back in 2009 where he said, she would make me write down her stories, which were always about little girls being kidnapped by evil women, witches normally, who would disguise themselves as her mother. They were the kind of stories that would have given Edward Gorey nightmares. Always appreciate an Edward Gorey plug. Thank you for that, Mr. Gaiman. I buy Edward Gorey books for people when they have children, because that's who I am in the lives of my friends' kids. Um, so, Vana, if you had to tell someone like what Coraline is about what is this movie about oh god oh god that's such a big question okay uh I mean I mean the heart of it is just like family trauma right it's just it's a, it's a little mm -hmm. girl experiencing family trauma and loneliness and how she copes with that is by escaping into a fam uh, fantasy world um and so I think that's the heart of it like that's like the the elevator pitch version I can think of right now <laughs> yeah definitely I I would agree with that completely and as is always the case with our episodes I will be quoting from a piece um this one is by the wonderful Hoi Chen Bui who many of you if you are longtime listeners listeners of the show know that she is one of my editors at Slash Film and she also joined us on our Turning Red episode to talk about being you know the the child of immigrant parents and what that's all about so listen to that sometime and know that the article we'll be talking about is Coraline is about the fear of growing up and the realization that it's not that bad. Um, and I'll be plugging from that because I think Koi Chan has some really interesting ideas on here. Because um, one of the things she says is one of the scariest parts about Coraline isn't the horrifying implications of the button eyes or the spindly child eating spider woman. It's the idea that we are all doomed to become boring, uninteresting adults. <laughs> That's so good. That's so good. <laughs> uh, we, we had a conversation about this at like the end of this movie um, when we were watching it last night, which is that like, yeah, I, I think there's this fear of like gray and being like, you know, your your dull parents who are like if you can tell that there's like a plot piece of this, which is like Neil Gaiman, who is a writer going like, I probably neglect my kids when I'm writing and it's crunch time. So I'm going to put that into this for these parents <laughs> who are clearly like just stressed to hell. Um, but I don't, I don't know. Like, I think there's a certain level of growing up that happens in this movie by the end and just in life where uh, things that used to be like scary because they were mundane you get excited about like I remember reaching a certain peak of being an adult where I got a new spice rack and I was so jazzed about it and <laughs> I don't think there's anything wrong with that but it's a thing that seems intimidating where like I don't know say your dad collects 
antique chess boards and you think it's the most boring thing possible. But then you will one day be an old person who collects something really boring that no one understands, but it makes you happy <laughs> in a really tedious way. So I, I don't know. I think that's like kind of just the 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 overall arc of how this this movie handles its 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 growth. Yeah, I'm with you on that one because you know, like we see the movie through Coraline's perspective, which is why when they move and they end up in the Pacific Northwest, everything is like doom and gloom and boring and bleak looking. And oh, yeah, they never see the sun up there. <laughs> and then, you know, obviously she, you know, goes on her adventures, comes out the other side, and then things look a little bit nicer. And there's always that question of like, do things look nicer because the other mother has been defeated? Or do things look nicer because Coraline has accepted like this is the new life now and it's time to start finding like the the bright side of life so to speak um so there's there's just so many deep themes going on in here but something that i really wanted to highlight is that Coraline is i think supposed to be 11 years old and we don't get a lot of coming of age stories about girls in like this tween sort of age unless it's about them having a period. Um, <laughs> it's so true. It's so true. <laughs> like every junior high story is like, well, then suddenly I had hair under my armpits and life was over. And it's like, that's not, that's only one part of coming of age. There are a lot of aspects of it. <laughs> and I love that Coraline is so prickly and so spicy <laughs> about everything because that is what an 11-year-old is. An 11-year-old is somebody who is so desperate to be taken seriously and not seen as a baby anymore. Like, oh, that's kid stuff. I'm not like that anymore. But you're nowhere near old enough to have the freedom of like a teenager and you are absolutely still a child, but you don't want to be seen as a child anymore. So there's like, that's why junior high is like so much attitude because you're really caught between these two worlds. So the fact that Coraline is also then like, personifying literal two worlds, I think is really, really smart and also very impressive for Neil Gaiman, someone who, to my knowledge, was never a teen girl uh, to be <laughs> able to do this. <laughs> so, but how do you feel about like the character of Coraline? I remember uh, this came out when I was like 21 and I remember so distinctly, um, I was in college at the time and I was going to CalArts, um, which is uh, has a really prolific animation program and Henry Salk is is pretty fond of us over there. And so uh, we got invited um, to the screening in Hollywood and, and Henry was there. I got to meet him. Um, and I like remember so distinctly, like just seeing so much of myself as a tween girl and like even just parallels in my own life, like about like how I had struggled with my relationship with my mother. Uh, and I was a theater kid and I went to Ashland <laughs> when I was in high school and like seeing it laid out, like it just felt so parallel to my own life that I was like, Holy shit. It's Neil wrote about me. This is about me. Who did that? How do you know? <laughs> And I think that there's something so special about Coraline because we also don't get a lot of stories about weird girls. Like a lot of the coming of age stories we get, even even if we go to like Judy Bloom, who love her dearly, she's great. But a lot of these girls are kind of conventional, so to speak. They are kind of fitting within the status quo. They the issues that they have while they could be relatable, they feel very average, like very girl next door. Coraline's a weirdo, and I think that that helps a lot of people feel seen in a way that we often don't get to. Um, Harmony, how do you feel about Coraline? 
I I mean, I was never specifically an 11 year old girl in my time, but like, no, I, I relate to a lot of things about this. Um, you know, you, you you think that your life is boring. You think that your your parents are boring. You want something more exciting. You want to escape to anything else. Like, I would go play in like the woods near where I lived, and I would be like, "Yes, where this fallen tree, it's fallen over, and it's across a river and on a cliff top, and like this is magical because I can sit on the tree and I'm above the river and I'm surrounded by nature and kind of getting eaten by bugs because I'm above a creek." And that's just part of my being here. But like, it's fine. It's magical. I'm not at home where all the the bad stuff is. And I think there's just this this kid nature to have your own space, to make to have your own world, to have control. And I, I think Coraline thinks she has control because when she first comes to like the other world, like the the the, the colorful but dark world, it's. It, it seems like everything she wants, you know, all of her neighbors are doing things to entertain her. All of the meals are for her. Everything feels like it's built around her, but she's not aware of quite how powerless she is. And I, I don't know that that that's that that's a real feeling to me. No, I, you're you definitely have a point there. First off, also listening to you talk about your little secret creek, I was like, no wonder we like Craig the Creek so much. Good God, because um, <laughs> that is a magical creek world for children, and that makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. But no, I like the point that you made about how you know suddenly this is like this other world seems so much better because everything is for her. But a lot of times when things are for you, um, you're kind of powerless, and. That just like kind of like, I don't know, it hit me in my core a little bit where I think about like, like a birthday party, right? Like that is your day. This is your day. You get gifts. You get to pick birthday dinner. You get a cake. Everything's awesome. But at the same time, like you can't fucking leave. It's your birthday party. How dare you? (laughs) Like Mm -hmm. You can't go anywhere. You actually don't have autonomy in this situation. Um, Especially as a kid, because it's all planned out for you. Like, oh, hey, we're going to go to the nearest places with go-karts and batting cages. You're not only trapped there, but like you have to be like subjected to whatever mom scheduled as far as this thing. (laughs) We're doing this at this time, then putt-putt, then presents, then cake. And like you don't actually, it feels like you can do whatever you want but it's not really on your time and you better appreciate it damn it that's the best (laughs) analogy it's just the best analogy because i remember my birthdays being so side for it and then the day coming and being like why do i have to do this (laughs) it's just (laughs) why did we invent this it really is and it's so much unnecessary stress for a little kid and then you add like the complications of like oh grandma got you something you already have and you have to pretend like you don't already have it because grandma's feelings are gonna get hurt like it's just chaos we do not (laughs) we do not let kids like be little humans enough and i think Coraline is like a really good exploration of that yeah and now Um, i've I've reached a certain point (laughs) in my age where i get psyched about getting socks for my birthday (laughs) the best gift truly (laughs) <laughs> so I do want to talk about specifically like this story being told in stop motion, because obviously this could have been any number of mediums and animation. This could have been live action if we really wanted to, but it just feels like stop motion was made for this story. So Bana, I'm curious if you have any thoughts on like why you think stop motion works so well for Coraline. I think 
I think there's some like real world answers. Like there's some magical answers to it for me where like, you know, this story is so ethereal and it's so she's going through such an ineffable journey that I think it couldn't have been captured the same way in live action. Like Mm -hmm. they could have tried, but I don't think that they would have gotten it. But there's also some like very real world, like technical things that were happening at this at this point in time that really changed fundamentally how stop motion animation was being produced and those like those like 3d printing for example or Mm -hmm. um we were developing live video feedback for stop motion animation before video feedback like you used to have to like just remember where the puppet was and Mm -hmm. guess where it had to go next and like this is the era where like the technology is starting to be developed where we like can have live playback and see exactly where the puppet was in the frame before and measure against it. And so Leica really dove into all this technology in a way that elevated the aesthetic of it so much that it was unlike anything we had ever seen in a feature stop motion before at all. It was it was groundbreaking what they were doing. I love that you can bring this information because that's obviously I knew the 3D printing aspect of it, but the video playback is something I did not know. And that is one fascinating and two makes so much sense why this movie also looks so fucking seamless (laughs) i imagine it also helps with like the scale because there's a lot of scenes that have so many moving parts like um when like the trailer shot they had of where like they fly up in the garden is her face or the millions of scottish terriers or like the the mouse circus like those are so intricate and there's so many details that i cannot imagine even trying to do that just blind yeah and there's also like because cg is like starting to really like come into its own as as an art form like this is when we first start seeing that marriage between stop motion and cg where Mm -hmm. like Mm -hmm. we can use cg like makeup we can use it to like alter and enhance the way we look as you know as a stop motion film without changing the essence of it and so like um you many people have probably seen the the faces for uh for this movie where like there's a seam on the face but they were able to digitally paint that out with cg or like the scenes with the the infinite terriers uh (laughs) like now you instead of having to build a thousand little schnauzers or whatever the hell they are uh you can build five and replicate them over and over and over again and and composite them in and build out this stop motion world with cgi tools that makes it look like grandiose in a way that mm-hmm. we couldn't do before. Yeah. And it it's so impressive. <laughs> like like I, I think about this movie and now knowing like the tech has caught up. Um and I feel like there's the, the CGI is used to like enhance this in such a fascinating way where around this time you see like CG especially the the technology's there where it is supplementing other effects it's supplementing practical effects you don't see those as much once we enter like the 2010s and historically like I, I didn't I only learned very recently this this ethos that I had of animation which is like hey for the best film justify to me why it's animated and apparently that's just an industry standard that someone told me about recently i'm like oh well here i am i thought i was real smart apparently i'm not (laughs) but it's just fascinating to think of like you know jason and the argonauts or you know any number of films throughout history and how stop motion was used because it was the only way to actually make this effect work and if they were to try and do this in live action, uh, it would probably would have came out similar to like an 80s fantasy film where like something like the never ending story 
it's it's fun, but like the effects don't hold up super well. And it's it's just so many different things colliding at once that it ma- makes this feel so special in spite of th- this technology technology helping this but also almost making it seem you know niche and outdated in like standard industry terms that breaks my heart yeah i like i think a lot about the end credits of paranorman and how they show like the beat by beat of how they make norman move and i always like credit that to people where i i think there's like such a weird underappreciation where people don't fully understand how much work goes into making these movies possible. And I'm just curious for around the room, is there any scene in particular when you watch Coraline and your just brain melts out of your ears? (laughs) That's such a good question. So I, there's lots of, there's lots of resources online for anybody who wants to look this up, but I, what they did for this movie specifically is they kind of approached the sets like it was theater. And so they forced the perspective when she's in the real world so Mm -hmm. that those sets are only like a foot deep. Um, But Mm -hmm. the the perspective on those rooms is forced. So it makes it look like it's full, but that's how they get that, that shallowness that like very, it feels very flat when she's in the real world. But then Mm -hmm. when they go into the, the fantasy spaces, they build out those sets and those sets are like, five, six, 10, 15 feet deep. And so like every time I see like the shift between the real world and the and the fantasy world, it's just like, it, it is that mind melting moment where I'm like, this looks so good and was so brilliant conceptually for making the feel of what they wanted to achieve that I'm just like, this is like Henry Selleck level genius moves that my little baby stop motion brain could not understand <laughs> when I was 21 years old. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I had no idea. Like, and it's so obvious because like you can tell there's a difference. But I, I have a color problem, so I just assumed like, oh, it's just the colors. But it's like, oh no, like absolutely everything about the two different worlds is shot and constructed differently. That's so cool. And I think that that's just such brilliant visual storytelling because obviously we're dealing with an 11 year old in this world, and she she feels like her world is boring. It's flat. It there's not a lot going on. There's not a lot of depth to the world that she's in. So that's what makes the other world even more enticing. Is that it just feels like a different plane of existence. I mean, obviously it literally is. It's a different world, but just getting that feeling of it and being in that space is going to make you feel differently. Um, because like spaces do affect us. Like claustrophobia is a thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and you don't have to have claustrophobia to like be able to sense, Ooh, something feels off about this place. So for her to be in her real world and be like, this feels flat and boring and I'm not having a great time to the other world where this is deep. This is exciting. It's 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 colorful, but also it just feels big. One of the reasons I think that Coraline is so brilliant is is because uh, of the stereoscopic film that they did. And if you ever have a chance to see Coraline in 3D and not just like the shitty little 3D glasses that you can get with like the old DVDs, if you can <laughs> see it really stereoscopic in 3D, like in a theater, the 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 depth that you get when you move between those spaces because of the force perspective is ethereal like it's magic it's truly magical and it is conceptually so brilliant and it is one of those things where like the medium is informing the artwork which is informing the process which is informing the content it is so like next level 
how they put it all together. And yeah, if you ever have a chance to see it 3D in theaters, like go do it. Absolutely. <laughs> that sounds just one, magical. And two, I think that's also probably the best possible way to experience the story, not just from like, obviously this is the, the best possible way to visualize it, but also like there's no way that you're going to feel closer to Coraline than being so immersed in that world. And I, I think that'd be really, really powerful. I would absolutely cry. Like I know myself well enough. I would cry. <laughs> like I would get so swept up in all of it and be so overwhelmed by the the story and the everything that I would just like cry tears of joy because that's who I am. I, I understand that about myself. And it's one of those rare instances where like I don't think I would n- normally recommend seeing a, a 3D version of a movie ever. Um, but it's a really rare instance where it's done so intentionally to help move the story along and to help you immerse yourself in what she is feeling. It's, it's really exceptional. Oh yeah. Well, I mean, I think that's what a lot of 3d, like ever since avatar, that's what a lot of 3d is. It's like, Oh, it adds depth. And like, that's nice. But like here it serves a purpose like narratively. (laughs) Yes. Yes, exactly. And that's rare with CG stuff because it can get so gimmicky. Oh yeah. I'm really glad that you both said that because I may have told this story on the podcast before, so if you're hearing it again, my bad, or you're welcome, I guess. (laughs) Um, But one of the only like 3D experiences that I've ever had, because I often don't pay extra for it (laughs) because I'm on a budget, but I went to go see Up, so it's the same year, um, in 3D because I wanted to see the balloons in 3D. I thought that was going to be the coolest thing. Um, And the problem is that I took drugs before I went to do that (laughs) hallucinogenic drugs and it was opening weekend and what does that mean it means no one has seen the first 10 minutes of up yet so I'm in the theater with my 3d glasses on so excited to see balloons and that weird bird looking thing from the trailer (laughs) and I got my popcorn and then the first 10 minutes of up happens while I'm on drugs and I have a full existential crisis i am crying i have to be escorted out of the theater i i had to come back and watch it again when i was sober because i was not prepared for the opening of up to be what it was especially on drugs so um that's just my psa for the people in the world if you're gonna go see a pixar movie one you should know better that was my bad i should have known um because Pixar really loves to be like, hey, you know those feelings you have in you? Let's let's bring them out. Uh, and they sure did. And it was only highlighted, only only highlighted by the fact that I was uh, on hallucinogenics, and it was a really bad time. Um, so that's a fun story about me seeing 3D animation. <laughs> um, so yes, I know myself. I would not be doing drugs before seeing Coraline because that would be, uh, I think, a too much. I think I would lose my mind. I think I would be on the floor um, in the middle of it all. I'll read them if you like. Read what? Oh, your tea leaves, dear. They'll tell me your future. Drink up then. Go on. No, not all of it. Not all of it. That's right. Now hand it over. Oh. Oh, Caroline, 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 you are in terrible danger. Oh, give me that cup, April. Your eyes are going. My eyes? You're blind as a bat. 
Oh, now, um, well, not to worry, child. It's good news. There's a tall, handsome beast in your future. A what? Miriam, oh, really? You're holding it wrong. See? Danger. What do you see? I see a very peculiar hand. I see a giraffe. Giraffes don't just fall from the sky, Miriam. <laughs> and I want to highlight some of these extra characters that we have in here because there are just so many. But uh, the the lovers that are not sisters that Harmony's talking about are Forcible and Spink, um, played by Jennifer Saunders and Don French. I love that Jennifer Saunders is in here because Joanna Lumley is in James and the Giant Peach. So Henry Selleck has had both of the Ab Fab ladies in his movies, <laughs> which is like a very dumb thing that makes me and probably like 10 other people really happy. Um, <laughs> Ab Fab is great. I love it. <laughs> It's so good, and it's just great. I'm like, I'm sad that they've never been in like one of his movies together, but I love that he's had them both separately. I think it's just lovely. Mm-hmm. Um, but I am particularly very fond of Miriam Forcible because there was a prompt going around on uh, TikTok not that long ago where it was specifically asking. Uh, fat people, like, when is the first time you have ever seen a character that, like, you resonated with? And usually my go-to is Edith Massey in any John Waters movie because I love her and because she's, like, she's fat, but she also, like, does not give a shit about things looking flattering and she swears and she's also a pervert and, like, (laughs) I relate to that on, like, a very deep (laughs) level. Um, But if there is a legitimate answer... It is forcible when she's doing kind of like her mermaid, like like birth of Venus sort of like uh, burlesque act where her boobs are just so unbelievably huge. But like she has a tummy and she also has like kind of a small butt. And because that's, you know, that's their gimmick is top heavy and bottom heavy. Mm -hmm. And that is how I am built. And I remember seeing that and it like having this very visceral effect on me where it's like. So affirming because I love this, but then at the same time, it makes me so angry at live action because it's really fucked up that the only time I've ever seen a body that looks like mine is in a stop motion movie where people have just the most bananas proportions humanly possible. Um, I mean, <laughs> like, Mr. No, B is a bowling ball on stilts. <laughs> right. <laughs> Like, so it's just this very wonderful thing where, like, you can take forcible out of my cold, dead hands. Like, I love her so much. But at the same time, like, it is very strange that, like, it took an animated, like, fantasy film for me to see a body that looks like mine. That's fucked up. (laughs) And that's no fault of stop motion. That is 100% fault of Hollywood. I think, too, like, so, like just because my brain is so technical when it comes to stop motion, uh, I think, too, just, like, the idea of, like, them building that little puppet is so funny to me. Like, just, like, somebody yes. having to sit there and, like, sculpt her, just sculpt her massive boobies with those tiny little clamshells on them is such a funny <laughs> visual to me. And all those teeny tiny little rhinestones having to be applied with, like, the smallest pair of tweezers one has ever seen yeah and it's and it's funny that you say that because i see so much of myself in spink and uh uh spink is like much more of a similar body type to me and i like i used to have pink hair and so like when this came this movie came out like i looked like her <laughs> <laughs> i love this for us harmony do you have anyone that you relate to <laughs> um i mean i don't think anybody in this is quite built like me but I, there is a little bit of an element where uh, I am absolutely like the cranky Russian neighbor upstairs because <laughs> I, I'm i just really passionate about stuff that nobody cares about. 
<laughs> I'm just like, no, this is my dream. I'm an artiste. You don't understand. <laughs> I love that. I love that for you. Thank you. <laughs> I had a feeling that's what you were going to say, but in my heart of hearts, I was really hoping you were going to say that you relate to the Keith David cat. And like, I know his name is just like Mr. Cat or whatever, but it's Keith David. Like Keith David is just always Keith David. <laughs> I will say that this is a very, uh, almost an un-Keith David performance in that he has like almost a breathy way of talking. He has a little bit of an inflection where... You can still tell it's very clearly Keith David, but usually when you hire him for a film, it's just like, yeah, just sound like how you normally sound. <laughs> yeah, just be Keith David. This one, he's like, I'm going to put a little bit of a little bit of a, a spin on it, a little flourish because I'm a cat. So speaking of voice acting, I want to give flowers to Dakota Fanning for how good she is as Coraline. <laughs> yes. Mm -hmm. I think that this is like a really fantastic voiceover performance for her, especially out of a child, um, because child voice acting can be really hit or miss. Sometimes I think it is so beyond brilliant. Like I do not have the actor's name in front of me, but whichever little girl voices Yaki Doodle in the Jellystone animated thing, <laughs> give her a thousand awards. She's so fucking funny. <laughs> oh my God. And she's like one of the only actual children on that show. Everyone else is voiced by an adult. And then there's just this random kid that is, just knocking it out of the, the park. The funniest character uh, <laughs> in the show consistently, yes. God, so funny. Um, but Dakota Fanning is really fantastic in this, and I think there is so much depth to her character because when Coraline is upset or excited, like, I feel that in my bones. Like, she just really, na like, nails it, and I think it's likely because she's a child, so, like, you know... It's not hard for a child to be a child, but I think it just really speaks to the talent of Dakota Fanning, who we now have seen like she's a very well-established actor who managed to like avoid the child actor curse and is continuing to do good work. And it's like, no, she's been good since day one. Yeah. Like, she's fantastic. A little genius. Uh, she's absolutely a little genius. And like, yeah, just encapsulating that whole character so well. And it's also one of the examples where I know for sure that everyone in this room has feelings about celebrity stunt casting and animated features. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, <laughs> like, I feel like it's well documented that we all think Chris Pat is Chris a terrible Pratt! casting <laughs> decision in <laughs> in Mario. But Dakota Fanning and Keith David, like, and, and honestly, everybody in this, like Terry Hatcher also as the mother and the other mother, phenomenal work, is an, is an example of actors who are not known primarily for voice acting that can deliver a very good voiceover performance. I don't think anyone in this movie is doing a bad job. I think everybody is kind of nailing it. I think Laika does a really good job at trying to maintain its artistic integrity and not play into gimmicks. I like I have my own feelings about Laika, some positive, some negative, but like damn, if they don't sit there and really focus on the minutia of it and like really try to uphold their their vision and ideals in a very uh a very constructive way. Um and I think their films are better for it. Like I think mm -hmm. it's better for them in the end that they do like have a very rigorous artistic intent with all of their films. I agree completely. And I think it just, it really does kind of separate these films. Like I never want to say like, oh, this movie feels like a cash grab. Not th this movie specifically, but just any movie in general. I don't want to say, oh, this feels like a cash grab. But then like movies like Shark Tale exist. And it's like, I don't n fully understand like how this got made outside of 
we're going to stack this with as many celebrities as possible because Shrek did well. Therefore, we're going to do the same thing and make an ass load of money off of it because Shrek made money. Mm. Like, so I never want to like make that assumption. But when I see something like Coraline where there are definitely like well-established actors in this. Dakota Fanning was obviously a big child star. But like Terry Hatcher, like she's on Desperate Housewives and she does, you know, a lot of TV, but she's not this like household name in the sense that people will like actively go out of their way to see something like like she's not Dwayne Johnson like they're not gonna like (laughs) throw the rock in somewhere and hope that people go see it they're like no we're gonna have this like very strict integrity to that and I don't because I never want to like pit movies against each other but the fact that I know that that goes into their process and their production process makes me appreciate them more and it like makes me want to categorize the like this movie or like any of like Miller and Lord's movies like they feel like they're in their own category where they're not sacrificing like the artistry to make sure that there's like a Hollywood A-lister in it they're like no we're getting the right people for the role and I don't know like does that make me a snob like am I an asshole for this (laughs) No, I don't think it makes you a snob, but like, you know, like there's always going to be the art house cinema of every genre. Um, And, you know, for stop motion, like, like is it like, like is the art house version. And like, Mm -hmm. you've seen Mm -hmm. other studios do this uh, and try to kind of do it in a more corporate way or a more like money grabbing way. And I don't think there's anything inherently wrong with that. And I don't think that those kinds of movies inherently have less value, but it's just a different approach. Like. It's different approaches based on like different studios' values. No, that makes that total sense. That is a sense. very optimistic way of thinking about <laughs> it, and I'm very glad that you brought it to the table because <laughs> I I'm a bitter asshole. <laughs> um, but you know, I think everybody in this is is doing a really great job, and I do also want to highlight Terry Hatcher because the other mother is so fucking scary, and it's not just the button eyes, it's not just the spider body. It's all of those visuals paired with her voice because her voice sounds so welcoming and assuming, but at the same time is like that perfect encapsulation of nice white lady voice where you're like, I feel like she could ruin me at any moment. <laughs> <laughs> she's a Karen? Is, is she a Karen? <laughs> like, and that's the thing that's so weird is like, she's not a Karen in the sense of like, she's going to throw a tantrum in the middle of a bed, bath and beyond because towels aren't where she wants them to be. Like, she's not that type of Karen, but she's definitely the Karen that's going to show up to a school board meeting and be like, actually... I think it's a problem that this book is in the library. And you're like, I feel like I'm being grounded and I need to listen to you, even though I don't agree with anything you're saying. I feel like she's that kind. Yeah, she has big, like, uh, girl boss energy, right? Like, she's cutthroat. Well, yeah, like, emphasis on boss in girl boss because she's very deliberate she's very in control it's not until like her plan goes entirely belly up towards the end of the movie that she really loses her cool like she is like all of this is so planned out she's not like flying off the handle like a karen would at like the smallest thing she's she's composed you know very calculated Mm -hmm. yes and there's something like something that i find really interesting is obviously there's something to be said about culture with how things trend And around Halloween every year is when we start getting the Coraline sound trending on, like, TikTok again. 
And it's not her yelling. It's not her like having the the big climax. It's her carefully and cautiously like here's the buttons to put on in place of your eyes because yes child I would like your eyes um but it's her t- describing like you could have chartreuse or you could have pink and it is like this very calm almost nurturing voice and I'm just it's very interesting to me that that is the part that is the one that you know ends up as a viral sound every year and not something more intense And I think that that speaks to the power of this movie in that it's not the big explosive moments that like make it like this. Even the small moments of this movie are so important. And that doesn't happen very often, especially in coming of age stories. Um, Every moment in Coraline matters. Mm -hmm. Like it like there's there's no fat on this. Like it I hate that expression, but like that's the expression. Um, But like there's there's nothing to cut. It's all there. It's all lean. It's all good. Mm -hmm. And I think, I don't, I don't know what I think. I just think that it's great. (laughs) No, I, I get it. Cause like once you get to the scene where she's like presents Coraline with her buttons and is like, Hey, I would like your eyes. Anyway, it'll only hurt a little bit. And if this was like, maybe like a, like an Aesop's fable, like a, an older story, then she could escape and then that would sort of be like the cautionary tale of like not everything is what is it's what you see is not always like real like there there there's a moral to that but where this becomes a mo- interesting coming of age story is that she has to like go back into hell basically in order to save ghost children in order to save her parents she is confronted with now direct and hostile environment and she has to like face growing up. She has to face the evil. She she it, it's she has to be a hero basically in her own story now. You're definitely right about that, and that is something that uh, Hui Chan even brought up in in this article, which I did not cite nearly as much because we've been having such riveting conversation. (laughs) Um, But one of the things that Hoi Chan says is, from the beginning of Coraline's adventures in the other world, something is off. But despite the multiple red flags from doppelgangers to the button sewed over her other parents' eyes to the mute version of YB to the cryptic warnings from neighbors, Coraline ignores them to avoid her greater fear, which is being crushed by ceaseless boredom. Where Alice in Alice in Wonderland goes down the rabbit hole somewhat by accident... Coraline willfully enters and re-enters a world so much brighter and weirder than her own, despite her own misgivings. Before you know it, Coraline has embedded you so deeply in its heroine's perspective that you get swept up in her technicolored vision of the other world and all of its amazing sights. And I think that that really speaks to the part you brought up earlier, Bana, where it was like you go through from the, the the real world to the other world, and you just get so kind of swept up in it all mm-hmm. that I think we all kind of turn into inner 11-year-olds because we're just we're just with her so it's deeply like at that point. Yeah, whimsical is a good word for it. And I also think it's interesting that you chose whimsical because whimsical, I think, often gets ascribed to like more fairy tale, like that typical brand of fantasy because this is definitely a fairy tale, but it is a bleak fairy tale. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but it still does have whimsy and there's there's some silliness to it with its darkness and I just think that's good writing. 
It's it's definitely good writing and like it's something that only someone who has an extreme amount of trauma could do. I feel like every writer in that writer's room like was intimately aware of like just how small you feel in that situation and how how much you want to get out of it. Oh my god, yeah. Like <laughs> I think anybody who watches Coraline and like can't relate to her or relate to any of the situation, I'm always just like, that's good for you. I'm <laughs> glad. Like that's great for you and you're very lucky and privileged and I hope you know that <laughs> because I don't want people necessarily to relate to Coraline, but I'm so glad that they can. <laughs> yeah, like this might be me me just talking from my experience, but like, is there really anybody who can make you feel smaller and more like a scared 11 year old or at least like an upset 11 year old than like your mother? <laughs> no, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> and like what's weird is I have an extremely good relationship with my parents and yet that is still my answer. <laughs> like I love my mom dearly. We had a great relationship, but no one makes me feel smaller than that woman. And I think that's just the the dynamic that exists and obviously it's it's infinitely worse for some than others, but I think that is like such a weirdly universal experience is I think it it also just defies gender too. Like your mom makes you feel small in a very specific kind of way. Mm-hmm. Well, you'll always be her baby. Ugh, like, yeah. like Coraline <laughs> is almost like escaping being infantilized in order to like grow up by the end of the movie and be responsible for like saving people, for bringing everyone in the house together, for like helping to throw like a party, for like vanquishing the evil by throwing the key down the well. It's, she, she, she's not being taken care of anymore, but, like, she can be. Her parents are there for her more than she realizes in, like, the real world. But, yeah, no, she, she, she's stepping up by the end of this in a way that she would not have at the beginning. And I think that there's something, too, to be said about, like, the competitive nature between Coraline and her mother and, like, how that dissipates towards the end. Because it does start out very, like, one-upping each other, mm-hmm. um, which is, you know, not a healthy dynamic in any kind of relationship. Uh, but I think that's something that if is unique to being socialized female and having, like, that experience with your mo- mother competing with you is is a unique experience when you're socialized female it really is and i've mentioned a little bit on the show in previous episodes but like despite you know having a good relationship with my mom like yes holy shit like my mom (laughs) did not start to learn how to unpack her own fat phobia and her own internalized fat phobia until i was like in my 30s um and then she finally was like oh wait no you're really happy this way like you don't have to hate yourself and be fat at the same time that's a a monumental idea i've never ever heard of and it's like all right cool i'm glad i could help you through this wish this would have happened 15 years sooner but you know we're here now and uh it's just such an interesting thing because yeah it was like a, a competitive thing of Oof, I'm not going to get into like diet talk on this episode, but it's definitely a thing. And uh, it is it is a very unique experience when when socialized female having to deal with the the weird competitive of mother of of your mother. It's just so strange that it happens. And hey, you know what? Adding another log to the fire on why I'm not having kids. (laughs) Fair. Valid. (laughs) Put them back. But mom! 
The whole school is gonna wear boring gray clothes. No one will have these. Put them back. My other mother would get them. Maybe she should buy all your clothes. So I do want to jump into something that Hoi-Chan also said, which I really, really liked a lot. And it's how she kind of ends this piece where, you know, upon Coraline's escape from the other worlds and the defeat of her other mother, her world is suddenly much brighter. Her wacky neighbors and their storied pasts are much more interesting. Her parents are warmer and more attentive to her. In the context of the movie, it could be because the evil other mother, a.k.a. Beldum, has, to, has been defeated and her shadow no longer looms over the neighborhood or it could mean that Coraline has embraced the idea of growing up. It's all a matter of perspective. And I'm realizing after I read that out loud that the comment I made at the start of the episode, I definitely got Oishan's <laughs> words in my head and was like, wait, I have the same thought. No, I don't. That's where I got it from. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I, I want to talk about this idea of embracing growing up or kind of accepting that you're growing up and becoming one step closer towards boring adulthood. And this is a big question, but do either of you remember having that realization in your life? Or even if it was like an adult looking back on it, but have you ever realized the moment where you're like, oh, I'm I'm growing up now. Like this is this is where I'm heading. I think that's just such a continual process. And it's something that you never outgrow. Like there's always a sense of 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 growing up even even now in my mid-30s I'm like I don't feel like I'm done with that process but I think it, I could you know like I can look back at my teenage years and and realizing the world wasn't as colorful before and the world mm -hmm. wasn't as bright as before and I was seeing through the world in such a different way and like um this is tangential but I was reading an article a couple weeks ago about how like kids children because they are they are forced to learn so much at once that their their all their sense, senses are heightened like their smell and their taste and their vision is all really heightened in a way that we dull down as adults and uh and i think that visual representation in Coraline just like mirrors so much as like you know you you get into your young, young adulthood and you realize like ice cream doesn't taste as good as it used to or mm -hmm. that like <laughs> the you know the the trees don't look as green as they used to but that there's other concessions to be made that like there's there's new joys in life that i didn't get to experience as a child like self-reflection and growth yeah <laughs> <laughs> harmony how about you um I, I i think when it comes to like a coming of age story it's all about like one pivotal moment usually now granted we're only seeing like that one moment and not the stuff that surrounds like Coraline. we don't really see the before or the after obviously but it's about that pivotal moment in something like this or like Stand By Me where everything changes from that moment onward. And a lot of us don't have that per se. We don't we don't have like a total life shaking moment where everything is suddenly different. Um, I, not necessarily for, for the better, but just different. And it, it kind of comes with like a moment where we all or we all should, I guess, come to the realization that. You, you're only young once, but you like you can't be immature forever. And that's really hard. And some people don't actively do that. Like they don't they don't ever get to a certain point because Coraline's essentially the same age in this movie from when she starts to what she ends from when it ends. It's like, you know, a week, maybe, but she's not as immature. And that's 
that's a learned skill. That's just mm-hmm. a, a thing that you develop with time and experience. And I don't know. I've had a I've had a lot of those little moments. Um, like I don't know. I remember being a, a an angry young man because I was you know socialized male and. That's what you do. <laughs> and um, I remember like coming home and being furious about something. And I was like exercising outside because I'm like, I have too much energy and I have to get it out because testosterone's a hell of a drug. And there's like a <laughs> butterfly that fluttered a little too close to my face. And I'm like, fuck you, get out of my face. So I like went to just swat it out of the sky and destroy it. And I was like, no, that'd be really mean. like it didn't ask for that and i don't know i i wasn't as angry after that i guess it just it's it's a butterfly effect in like a really literal sense but i i don't know it just kind of i i became aware of my actions and how they were how they would impact others in that moment where i was like i don't know 15 maybe so I don't know. It's just life's a lot of little moments like that. Not Nothing you can make a movie out of necessarily, but like something that means a lot to you. Yeah, I think that's a really good way of putting it because I, I agree with both of you in that it's something that doesn't stop. It's something that we do forever. But I think that a lot of people like to believe that it stops. Mm-hmm. I think they like to believe like, oh, once you've graduated high school or gotten married or had a kid or put a down payment on a house or whatever arbitrary milestones we've assigned to growing up, people think that like that's that's all they have to do and that there's nothing more that needs to happen when they should do things like self-reflection <laughs> or in- interrogating their internalized feelings, you know, what have you. There's always room for growth. Um, I don't know. I think like I was thinking about the question that I asked the two of you. And then I was like, cool, now I have time to think about my own answer. Ah, yes, there's your process. (laughs) There's my process. And I will show my hand a little bit, Harmony, when you were talking about being like an angry young man and coming home and being angry because that's what you do. Like my first thought was Patrick being like, from SpongeBob being like, I can't see my forehead. And like that being why he's mad that day because just, you know, arbitrary anger. You just have anger and it's got to go somewhere. I have bangs Um, now. I can't see it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But this just sounds so corny and you're allowed to make fun of me, I promise. But for those that don't know from either my online presence or previous episodes we've talked about, like Drop Dead Gorgeous and Miss Firecracker, I did pageants for most of my life. Uh, I did them as a child, like toddlers and tiara style. I did them as a teenager when I was a punk goth because my friends joked and was like, you couldn't do it again. And I said, bet. Um, <laughs> so then I would, you know, take take the hot pink out of my hair for a weekend and do a pageant just to like prove people wrong. That's the thing that I did. When I retired from the world of pageantry, I think that was like a huge oh shit moment for me where I was like, oh, I'm I'm an adult now. Like I'm growing up because pageant feel like unless you're somebody who's like a career pageant person who like actively wants to be Miss America, it is such like a childish, like superficial, like this is for fun. I'm playing dress up and getting to be on stage and like have attention. It's just it's glorified being the the you're forcing yourself to be the star of the school musical because you're competing. So everyone has to look at you regardless of how you place. And once I was done and like, you know, passed the crown down and, you know, fulfilled my reign and I was done for the last time. It was like really kind of mind blowing looking back and it's like, why did I do all this for so many years? This doesn't 
nurture me. Like I learned a lot from those experiences and I'm, I'm, you know, I don't necessarily regret having done them, but at the same time, like that is the line for me. And I've also changed so much since that line. Like that was never the end of it. I thought it was when I was that age. I was like, oh, there's a before and an after and that's where we are now. And as an adult looking back, it's like, I've had like seven more of those lines in, in the years since. Probably more like seven D lines in that in the years <laughs> since then. Um, because yeah, it's, it's an ever-growing process. We're never done. We are coming of age every fucking day of our lives. <laughs> Not just when we're 11 years old and falling into weird, you know, wormholes in, in, in brick sides of our houses. Well, Harmony, the time has come. Coraline is asking you to the prom. Is it a yes, a no, a maybe, or are you getting her a ticket so she can go on her own? It's a yes. Uh, I, I, I think I've made myself abundantly clear how much I love this movie. I <laughs> loved it when I first saw it when it came out. I watch it frequently, probably like once a year, once every two years, and it's great every single time. Um I'm definitely going to be like more aware of like looking at like the background and the depth now, which will be very fascinating. Um, and also, I don't think there's anything wrong about taxiderming your pets. Just saying. <laughs> That's I'm glad this from this whole episode. <laughs> yeah, this movie's normalizing it. Nothing wrong with it. <laughs> <laughs> oh God, I figured it was going to be a yes because you know you like this movie and you're you're not good at hiding how you feel. No, and it's I fucking love that about you. I love it. <laughs> Well, Bonnet, thank you so very much for joining us yeah. and for bringing so much insight. This is this has been just an absolute dream. This is the conversation I was hoping we would have. So where can people find you on the internet if you would like them to find you on the internet? And if you have any plugs, now is your time to shine. Uh, you can always uh, reach out uh, bonnetbones.com. Uh, I do meetings for free for students who want to get into the animation industry. And so you can go on my website and book a video appointment with me and just talk to me for an hour about any questions you have. Uh, I'm also on TikTok, bonna.bones. Amazing, amazing. As always, friends, you can follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at This Ends at Prom. You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram and TikTok at BJ Colangelo. And you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Velocitraptor, Velosa underscore trap underscore tour. And as always, humongous thank you to the Sonderbombs for allowing us to use Title as our theme song. They have a new song out called The Star. Make sure you listen to it because it rules just like everything else that they do. But Harmony, what cool indie band do you want people to check out this week inspired by Coraline? So I wanted something that was, uh, you know, very dreamy, like lucid dreamy, something with a something that would fit the vibes of this movie. And so the band I'm shouting out is called Gloss. Um, and for clarity's sake, that is like the noun, not the acronym, because there is a band called Gloss that it stands for Girls Living Outside of Society Shit. And they are a queer core band that is great, but not who I'm talking about today. Um, this is a band that released an EP earlier in the year called Are You OK? Uh, they do, uh, they have a really fantastic rhythm section with like almost like progressive bass. But it's very um, like indie pop with like a really lush sound to it. That's just nice. It's just they go through like really good vibes into like intense breakdowns and solos. Um, I think polyrhythms is a term that could be applied. Uh, but I don't know enough about words to know if that's correct. But if that sounds <laughs> correct, then someone will 
you know what you're getting. There we go. That's what I'm that that's what I'm saying. So uh, yeah, check them out. Beautiful. All right, friends, that takes us out on Coraline. We will see you next week. And as always, save that last dance for us. Bye. Bye. This episode was brought to you by Pod People Productions. To find more episodes of this show and others, please visit podpeople.me.